At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign overall. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. Today, as Pastor Steve alluded to, we're going to dive into uh, a new study. We're going to be studying the, the book of Daniel. And so far in two services, I've been able to get to about point one of my sermon. And so you guys pray for me. But, but don't worry, uh, because this study guide is, is such an amazing resource. It's been put together by our, our life groups team. And so whatever I don't get to in my sermon, that's why the study guide is here. You can go even further in your personal time of study, so make sure you, you get that. But I want to talk to you about why, why we're doing this. Um, in many ways, um, the book of Daniel is about what it means to live in a time where the people of God feel culturally displaced. Um, many sociologists in our current day and age have uh, labeled this time as a time of a moral revolution that's happening all around us. Now, I don't want to say that as a compliment. The moral revolution that's happening around us is really a detaching of moral eth- uh, ethics and, and uh, truth and veracity from God, detaching that from God. And when you detach truth from Christ, it's never in a vacuum, you attach to something, and what's being attached to is a secular culture. And we as Christians are finding uh, that the more we say amen to Christ and the Bible, the more we're going to feel out of step with the world around us. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody feeling that? And I don't want to ever mislead you. It's, uh, it's common in so many churches for there to be like a bait and switch where uh, you preach something that is what itching ears want to hear, and then people start actually reading their Bibles and come to discover, hey, what I heard preached is different than the God of the Bible. We don't want that to be the truth. We, we want to make sure our sermons, our songs align with the word of God. And if, if they are going to align with the word of God, then the truth is you need to be prepared in your heart to feel more and more like exiles in this country or in this cult, current cultural moment. And what is often unseen, but yet very, very real and tangible is the pressure to conform, to conform to the moral shifts and changes that are happening around us, a time in which what was once unthinkable now has become unquestionable. Maybe you feel it every day on your job or even in your family or in a broader culture that it's no longer okay to say let bygones be bygones or to remain neutral. The expectation concerning all of our morals, concerning sex and money and power and all of these things is that we would not just be neutral but that we would celebrate 
celebrate even things that seem antithetical to the gospel, to affirm even things that feel contrary to the word of Christ. And what do you do in a moment like that? How do you survive in a moment like that? That, that, that really is the big question of the book of Daniel. That's, that's why the teaching team and I felt like it was important that we spend the first six weeks of our year here. It's because we really want you to be equipped on how to represent Christ, how to remain faithful to Christ in a hostile culture. I was recently reading uh, the words of uh, uh, Sarah Smith. Sarah Smith is a freelance journalist that writes for the BBC, the British broadcasting company out of England. And she recently wrote this. Our culture feels as if it is inhabited by two tribes with completely different values, beliefs, and goals. How many would agree with that, that that's the way the world is feeling right now? That there are almost two tribes, and it seems like the gulf between those two tribes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And in a year like we're in right now, where there's an election that's afoot, uh, what I've come to believe about an election in a, in a political system like ours, we're in a Democrat republic where the government is uh, by the people for the people or at least is supposed to be I, I, I'm convinced that voting more reveals our spiritual state and condition than anything else it just more is a revelation or exposing what's going on in in our hearts especially when we boast of the, the population being about 70% Christian or so, and you can debate how much of that you believe or not, but what is true is that when, when Super Tuesday comes and goes and elections happen, whoever we have in office is going to really be a reflection of who we are and, and where we're at, and you, you may not like that much, but, but uh, take heed to it, because I think Sarah Smith is right. There's diverging goals. There's different values and different beliefs. How many have heard the name Al Mohler before? Anybody ever heard that name before? Al Mohler is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Boyce College in Louisville. And he says this, there's a, there's a massive moral change that's happening in our culture which represents an even greater shift in worldview. So what he's saying there is that the moral change that we're seeing happening around us is really just a reflection of the fact that we no longer see the world the way we used to see the world. That, that the lens through which we used to see the world, which in many ways was shaped by what culturally have been called Judeo-Christian values, or maybe a better way of saying it is shaped through the lens of Scripture in a lot of ways as we determine what's right and what's wrong. Well, the Bible has been displaced. And again, when you displace something, it, it never is in a vacuum. You always replace it with something else. And we've replaced it with this uh, very egocentric perspective of do what feels right to you. And when every man does what's right in his own heart, that leads to, to chaos. One more quote, um, and it's from a book that I really want to encourage you to get. It's, it's, it's um, not required reading, but you certainly will benefit your own soul if you do. It's by Rosario Butterfield, and the book is simply entitled Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. And here's what she says. The devil, our adversary, wants us to join him in rebellion against God. He wants us to cower, to become traitors, and to believe the myth 
of our own autonomy. He wants the, us to uh, wave the white flag and to surrender. And, and that's the pressure of our current cultural moment is to say, you've lost the battle, Christians. You, you who believe the Bible, that you had your day and that we've won, that those, who, those ideas that seem to be against the word of God, that the advance and the, and, the, and the momentum of those ideas is so strong that the best thing you can do is concede and, and wave the white flag. But I'm here to let you know that the more the culture rages against Christ, the more it is saying to us how much it needs our faithfulness. You know, really, being a Christian in today's culture is like being a parent of a teenager. If you're going to survive the teenage years, you're going to have to master the art of understanding that the more that your teenager rages and rebels, the more they are telling you underneath it all, I really need you to be stable and faithful and keep loving me as I'm trying to figure out my way. Don't let my erratic behavior push you away because I really need your love and your stability. Any parent know what I'm talking about, right? Any mom or dad know what I'm talking about. If you just look at their, their behavior, you're going to opt out of the teenage years and say, come back and check in with me when you're a young adult. <laughs> Amen. I'm going to opt out for about 10, 15 years. Then you come back when you reach about 30 and you get your mind back again. Right? But, but what your teenager is saying to you is, no, I really need you to be faithful. And what our culture is saying to us, anytime our culture is, is rebelling against God, raging against God, is, it's just saying to the church, don't treat me as an enemy, but treat me as someone who needs to be one to Christ. And it's hard to remember that because we, we, we're in such a combative and hostile moment, and it really is, but we got to remember our responsibility is to be faithful. So what does it mean to live in a culture marked by excess and sin and violence and to be faithful to the ways, the word, and the will of God, when you begin to ask that question, now you have stepped into the world of Daniel. Daniel and his companions uh, are living in that type of world. So I want you to join me in Daniel chapter 1. Let's go there together, Daniel chapter 1. And again, I got all these amazing notes. I promise you I got three points and I'm probably going to get to one. And that's all right, because you'll keep going, and you'll keep studying, and you'll keep reading, and you'll go even deeper, and we got a great guide to help you to be able to do that. Now, Daniel lives in a city called Babylon, and as we're going to see in just a moment, he, he's not in Babylon because he wants to be there. Daniel is in exile in Babylon. Babylon is not his natural habitat. Babylon, though it has a, some, some amazing food, uh, some beautiful clothes and wonderful uh, art and, and sophistication, all that stuff, at its core, Babylon is rebellious against God and it doesn't have Yahweh at the center of its culture and a way, and way of thinking. 
We are first introduced to Babylon. Babylon is one of the most prominent people groups, one of the most prominent uh, cities and, and nations in all of the Old Testament. We are first introduced to Babylon in Genesis chapter 11. How many remember the Tower of Babel? Anybody remember that Tower of Babel? Uh, the Tower of Babel is early Babylon, the Tower of Babel, Babylon, early Babylon. And, and, and here's... The mindset of the people, if you really want to crystallize the mindset of the people, nothing captures the arrogance of Babylon more than verse 4 of chapter 11, where they say, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Now, the question throughout our entire study of Daniel is not what city you live in, but what city are you a citizen of? You see, you can live in Babylon and still be a citizen of heaven. You can live in a culture that is pagan and progressive and, uh, and powerful and sinful and excessive and violent and still be a citizen of heaven. How many know this world is not our home? How many today can profess, I'm a citizen of a different kingdom, I'm a citizen of heaven, right? But you know your citizenship by whose name you're trying to build. Babylon is not about building the name of God. Babylon is not about God giving you a name. Babylon is about, let's make a name for ourselves, And that's what this culture is telling us. Man, I wish I had a room full of college students right now because if I did, I would say uh, to them, and you're just gonna have to pass on the message, that contrary to the message of this culture, life is about more than just likes and followers and influence and popularity and fame and fortune and all of these things that our culture wants to make us feel it's all about. You ask uh, this current generation, Gen Zers or younger, you ask them what they want to be when they grow up. Number one job aspiration is not an engineer, it's not a teacher, it's not a doctor, it's certainly not a pastor, it's I want to be an influencer, right? Because we've been taught by Babylon that it's about making a name for yourself. Now, fast forward to the book end of Scripture, to the book of Revelation, and we are reintroduced to Babylon, now called Babylon the Great. And it's not great because of its moral stature. It is great because of its outsized influence and power. And in verse number 2 of Revelation chapter 18, we read these words, Babylon has become a dwelling place of demons. Think about that. That's the end of the story. Whenever we are seeking to build a name for ourselves apart from God, what we have done is opened ourselves up to the influence of Satan. And the next thing you know, Satan is in control of our lives 
because we've bought into all these worldly philosophies and our life, our culture uh, becomes a dwelling place for demons. And some of you even now are saying, how in the world did I get into this mess? Or how did my kids get so far off into this lifestyle or this way of thinking? And it's because we've bought into the lies of Babylon. So how do you survive Babylon? Well, I'm going to say to you, this is my big idea for the whole series. My big idea is this. You got to remember God is sovereign. How many believe that? That God is sovereign. How many believe that God is in control of human history, of the affairs of the world, and that God is in control of the affairs of our lives? How many believe that God is sovereign? Amen. I appreciate that golf clap, but I pray that by the end of this service that you will really believe that God is sovereign because the key to surviving Babylon is to remember God is sovereign over our cultural circumstances, that all the affairs that are happening, as tough as it may feel about Christians, listen to me now, in particular those of you who, who lament our current cultural moment, I want to let you know God is not conceded one day. One square inch to the devil, what he is doing is working things out according to his will, and things are being prepared just as they should be, just as we should expect for the return of Jesus Christ. That's what all this is setting up, the second advent, the return of Jesus back into his inheritance. I'm going to read the verse seven verses. Let's look at verse number one. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. What a devastating way to open a book. This book does not open with celebration or compliment or joy. It opens with devastation. Israel is defeated. Israel is taken prisoner. Israel has now been besieged. I want to read from our study guide. And again, you can get yours today if you don't have one. But on page eight, our team who put this together, such a great team, they wrote this. The worst had happened. The temple had been robbed and desecrated. The best and brightest youth had been taken captive by Babylon, Judah's enemy. Babylon had came, raided, destroyed, and conquered. The opening verses of Daniel 1 paint a bleak picture indeed. This is as bleak as it gets. No more temple worship. No, no, no more gathering together. No more celebrating the things that were so central to the culture of Israel. No more being able to praise Yahweh publicly and openly. That, that, that whole thought of, of freedom of religion was no more. You, you no longer can do that because you've been defeated by, by, by Babylon. And here's the thing. I hope you are a careful enough reader to see this because what makes this very disorienting, if you don't know the sovereignty of God, is verse number two where it says, and the Lord gave. 
the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. It was God who gave his people over to Babylon. Now, this is Daniel going beyond just recording history for us. This is not just any longer a record of history, though it certainly is that. I love the historicity of Scripture. Part of the reliability and the faith I have is because of how historical it is, giving you dates and times and cities and kings. This is no Greek mythology. This isn't a story long, long ago in a land far, far away. This is rooted in actual historical fact. But what is so disorienting is that Daniel now is beginning to interpret history for us and he wants his readers to know God is in control of this moment. We're defeated, but God did it. And why? God, why would you let Babylon conquer your people and take them captive? It was because all throughout the Old Testament, God warned He warned Israel that if you rebelled against me, I'm going to discipline you. Now, here's my question for you. We know how we discipline individuals, but how do you discipline a nation? You know, when it comes to disciplining an individual, we already know you you take away something that they really enjoy or you impose some restriction upon them. But how do you discipline a nation? Well, God says the way you discipline nations is by other nations. And God says throughout the Old Testament, in particular, look at Jeremiah um, 18, 7 and 8. Over and again, he says to his people that if you rebel against me, I will let the nations come in and they will take you captive. And Israel had rebelled against God. Let me just say this. God is faithful to judging us because his hope is that his judgment will humble us. Now, here's the good news, is he is not just faithful to judgment, he is faithful to covenant. Oh, that was a good place to shout. (laughs) That was a great place to shout. God is not just faithful to judgment. He will judge us when we rebel against us, but he judges us not as our earthly fathers, but he judges us for our own good in order to humble us so that we might return to favor and praise God. He does not forget we are his covenant people. He never relents of his love, his grace, and his mercy. And even when we are rebellious and far from him, we may try to walk away from him, but he never lets go of us. How many praise God for that? The story doesn't stop there. Verse number three, the king commanded Aspenaz, his uh, chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom. Endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. 
Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Friends, one of the things we're going to have to do if we're going to survive in Babylon is recognize the cultural influences of Babylon. In other words, Babylon had an agenda. It was to strip these youth, and these were young people, some estimate like in their late teens, early 20s, to strip them of their identity and to replace it with a Babylonian identity. And such it is in our culture as well. Satan has never lost or changed his strategy. He wants to strip us of any identity in Christ and to give us a new identity in Babylon. And how does he do it? Well, three things that I see here, and I don't want you to miss it. The first is the social theory of Babylon. Did you notice this? That Babylon has made success an idol. The only thing that Babylon celebrates is strength and smarts and success. Look at verse number four. He didn't just want any youth. He wanted youth without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, smart otherwise, and competent to stand in the presence of the king or in the king's court. And this is the world that we live in. Our kids are up under so much pressure to not be successful, but to have the image of success. Every filter is about having the image of success. Living life for the gram, it's about having the image of success. Living for social media, having an appearance that somehow you are successful. And why is that? It is because Babylon has made an idol out of success. All Babylon wants is give me your strength. You won't see people posting on social media their sad days, their weaknesses. No, we celebrate strength in our culture. There's no space for anything else. And yet, this is so antithetical to the message of the gospel. Let's not forget the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, remember, when you were called that not many of you were wise, not many of you were great or noble, Now, many of you were of outstanding reputation, but God calls the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. How many thank God that you don't have to show your resume to get into the body of Christ? I'm telling you right now, I'm grateful I didn't have to pass an IQ test to be a part of the group because if I had to, I may not have gotten in. Praise God that we don't have to have success or title or a certain bank account. Praise be unto God that Jesus still says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. I didn't bring success to the party. The only thing I brought to this party was my broken and my shame and my sin and my fears and my guilt but all of that and more was covered on the cross and as he hung there he said to Chris Brooks and he said to you it is finished all you have to do is trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and you can be redeemed Christ is not like Babylon If you, let me just do a PSA, that if you're here because you want to be a part of the assembly of the pretty and the perfect, you're in the wrong group. 
But if you're here because you want to be a part of the assembly of those who know they need a Savior. Okay, I'll preach to this side of the room. Know you need grace. Know you need mercy. Anybody here say, it's me, Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I'm not going to front or fake it. I need Jesus. I don't just want Jesus. I need Jesus. If that's you, praise God, you're in the right place. Amen? But Babylon doesn't just use its social theory. It uses its educational system to uh, retrain youth as well. I come from a family of educators. I'm so impressed by Babylon's use of education. Did you notice that this is a precursor to the university system? For three years, they were taught language and literature, science, and math. But that's not all you learn in the classroom. I wish I could tell you that all you learned in the classroom were the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. But no, there is no education that's morally neutral. My dad was a teacher for 27 years on the high school level, a few years on the college level. My wife comes from a family where her mom and her dad were educators. I will tell you that education is not morally neutral. There's always a moral agenda in education. Now, it used to be we didn't hide this. You go back to the origin of our Ivy League schools. Just think about Harvard for just a moment. 1632, it's founded, and it has as its motto this Latin phrase, veritas, Christos, et ecclesia. What does that mean, veritas, Christos, et ecclesia? It means truth for Christ and the church. But by the time we reach the Enlightenment age, Christos, et ecclesia, is dropped Veritas remains truth, but detached from Christ and the church, as if truth can exist in a vacuum. And what happened there with a sleight of hand is that truth was detached from Christ and attached to a secular culture. Fast forward now. And it was a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, where we got three Ivy League school presidents in a congressional hearing, and they're asked very clearly, very simply, is anti-Semitic speech a violation of your code of conduct? And they could not condemn it at all. Why? It's for years and years they had hemmed themselves in into a secular philosophy that somehow prioritized freedom of speech over the protection of the individual. They have been so bound up by their secular ideas ideas that they didn't realize they had rejected and abandoned a basic morality and here they stood exposed before all the world and the amazing thing is that we act surprised when we saw it as if education is morally neutral. Friends, I'm telling you now that before you send your kids off to college and university, you need to understand that that's a discipleship system that you're sending them into, and you better have been a homeschooler. Even if they went to public or private school, you better have been teaching them in the home that Jesus is Lord, that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of the living God. Don't send them into Babylon unequipped. Some of us are sending our kids out to Babylon and paying thousands of dollars for them to be disciple and then surprised when they come back with a secular worldview that no longer values life or ethics or anything that aligns itself with the vision of Scripture. Babylon educates its youth. And we shouldn't be surprised by it. 
I'm over my time, but one more point. Babylon doesn't just use education, it uses religion to change the moral and ethic compass of its youth. And I got to talk about these names. These names. Daniel, Hananiah, Shatrach, Mishael, Azariah. You know, names to the Jewish people meant something. They had deep and profound meaning. This was not haphazard. They named their children because they wanted their children to be sent a message. Last night, my son Judah, before he went to bed, had a conversation. My sweet Judah, I asked him, I said, Judah, do you know what your name means? He says, what does it mean, Dad? I said, your name means praise. And more specifically, it means the praise of the God of the Bible. That's what Judah means. When me and your mama, when we named you, it was because we wanted every time somebody said your name, we wanted you to be reminded that you were created to praise him, that you were created to worship him. I said, Judah, do you understand that? That that's what your name means. I don't want you to forget that. I want you to know your name means praise and you're meant to praise Jesus. Do you understand that? Yes, daddy. All right, good night, go to bed. That was our conversation. Daniel meant something. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah meant something. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Azariah means something. Azariah means Yahweh has helped me. Mishael means who is like God is. Their mama and their daddy named them in a way where they would forever remember who God was and that they were meant to worship him. But now here comes, here comes Babylon to change that. But maybe you notice you could almost preach the gospel with these boys' names. Can you imagine Daniel walking into the room and meeting these, these new Babylonian friends of his? They say, what's your name? My name is Daniel. They say, well, that's an interesting name. What does that mean? And he says, that means God is my judge. God is ultimately in control. He's the one who determines right from wrong. He is sovereign over the universe, over every square inch. He declares mine. And that if he is judge, then all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are rightfully condemned for our sin. God is judged. Therefore, no man should stand before him. We are deserving of his punishment and his wrath. And as tears begin to fill Daniel's eyes, Hananiah walks in. And Hananiah says, you're right, Daniel, but don't forget, Yahweh is gracious. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. How many thank God that he's a God of grace? That he's a God who saves us, not by merits, not by work. He saves us, not because we deserve it, but because he's good. And then in comes Mishael, and he says, who is like our God is? Who can be both judge and gracious? Who can bring justice and mercy together at one point where they kiss one another like the cross? Who is like our God? 
And then comes Azariah, and Azariah comes in and says, boys, remember, we're in a mess right now, but Yahweh helps us. He's going to get us through this because he's the God who is faithful to judgment, but he's also the God who is faithful to covenant, and he's going to bring us through because he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. You can preach the gospel with those names. But the Babylonians say, no, we don't like those names. Because in our culture, we're a polytheistic culture, you can worship anybody and everybody as long as you don't worship Jesus, as long as you don't worship Yahweh. Have you noticed that, that you can have any philosophy of life? You could be a pagan, you could be a, a polytheist, you can be a polygamist, you could be whatever you want. In our culture, just don't stand for Christ. So Daniel, we're going to give you the name Belteshazzar, which is an ode to the god Baal, which means Baal protects and we're going to give you, Hananiah, the name Shadrach, which means Aku inspires me, one of our other gods. Mishael, we're going to give you the name Meshach, which means belonging to Aku. And Azariah, we're going to give you the name Abednego, which means servant of Nego, another one of our pagan gods. But you can't worship your God anymore. Friends, we got to train our children and we got to remind ourselves we were made for worship that we were made to worship the God of the Bible. And I don't care how much this culture tries to change who we are from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. How many know his name is to be praised? I want to invite you to stand with me all over this church. Stand with me all over this church. We're going to close by worshiping him. But maybe today uh, you know you need the God who judges, the God who is gracious. Maybe you need the one who helps. If today you've come in here in need of a savior, don't get this close to his mercy and leave without knowing him. There'll be friends at the front and friends in the lobby. As we close in worship, I pray that you will open your heart to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we surrender all to you. We humble ourselves in your presence. We give our hearts and our lives to you. We're living in Babylon but we're citizens of heaven. Help that to be true of us. May your spirit move in us and through us until all have heard, until Christ returns. And all God's people with a loud voice said, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.